Welcome to Creative On Purpose Live. These conversations are about flying higher and the difference only you can make. I'm your host, Scott Perry, author of Onward and a Compass, helping difference makers live their legacy at Akimbo Workshops and Creative On Purpose. You can visit creativeonpurpose.com to learn more. This season, we're drawing insight and inspiration from guests successfully embracing uncertainty, navigating adversity, and making things better doing work that matters. Let's meet today's guest. Mary Jane Miller, welcome to the broadcast. Please tell the viewers who you are, what you're up to these days, and where can they go to learn more about you and the difference you're making? Well, it's nice to be here, Scott. Thank you for inviting me. Your podcasts are wonderful. Um, I don't know if anybody's tuned into them, but you should. He, he really gets a wide variety of people. Uh, my name is Mary Jane Miller. I am dedicated to, I guess, sacred art, prayer, Christianity for sure, um, but in a very wide berth of what's available to us as far as human beings on the planet, spiritually speaking. Um, in your introduction, you talked about navigating the unknown, and I really am a candidate for that. I have adopted this practice, and it's extremely traditional, which I honor and respect, but I have found over 30 years, it's a little confining for me. Uh, my websites are sanmigueliconscom and millericonscom I'm a writer and a teacher and a full-time iconographer. I live in Mexico. I'm married to a beautiful Mexican man for 44 years. Happy about that. And if you're ever in Mexico, San Miguel Allende, please come visit. The studio is always available and we love to talk about God. Nice. I, my wife and I actually attended the Modern Elder Academy in uh, Baja uh, right before the pandemic, as a matter of fact. And it, it is really beautiful, uh, at least down in, the, in that corner of, of Mexico. I'm not sure where that is in relation to where you're at. Um, so when I was look, investigating your website, just as you know, getting ready for this um, interview, one of the words that leapt out to me is one of my favorite words, and that is Byzantine. And I wonder if you would um, share with our viewers who might not be um, hip to the definition or its you know, current usage, what, what does that mean? The Byzantine Empire precedes Rome, um, probably tagged on to the Greek Empire, but it's around the Mediterranean and in the beginning, short, short history, Istanbul was the house, the, the home of the Byzantine beginnings. Um, as many people who are Christian might know, Jesus walked around all along the Byzantine countries and the ascetics settled in the mountains and, uh oh, there's a cat, spare me. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Pets and children are always welcome on the broadcast, so feel free to bring, bring your- Well, it's either that or we're gonna be talking yeah. <laughs> with a cat. <laughs> Forgive me. No worries. Um, so the uh, the Byzantines got very active in trying to transcribe what they thought of as the life of Christ into physical images. Um, shortly after that, there was a lot of confrontation in that area, and it split because of a lot of different invasions, but primarily the Muslims came and they wanted their religion and they wanted that space. And so they accommodated that, <laughs> that um, I don't know, the believers, they had it their own way and they just decided it was time for them to have their new leader. So it split basically the Greeks 
represented one kind of iconography and the Russians another. I'm condensing history, I'm butchering it, I'm making it very small, but I think it's enough um, Byzantine iconography is based on the idea of portraying the divine in concrete form. And one of the fascinations I've had is through doing this work, I realized that all things begin with a thought. Absolutely everything we do begins with a thought. And therefore, especially these days, we should care for what we're thinking about since it is powerful. But when I teach my classes, I try to get people in touch with the idea that in the beginning of creation, whether you're a person who believes in evolution or you're a person who believes in the Big Bang or you're a person who doesn't really have a, an opinion one way or the other, all of it began with one thought from somewhere, some kind of divine energy thinking, some kind of God thinking. Um, I really don't care, but I know that for humanity, no, nothing we do begins without a thought. Really and that's oh, I'm sorry, we broke up there for just a second, but it looks like you're back. Um, and so the Byzantine architecture and Byzantine art has a very unique kind of quality to it. Can you give us any of the kind of defining characteristics of um, the approach and, and how you weave them into your images? One of the oldest... Um, forms of artwork, of course, belongs to sacred image and theology and spirituality in different corners of the world, around the world. Humankind has been trying to document itself for thousands of years, and the Byzantines gave it a particular signature where Christianity is concerned. They believe that you can <laughs> I don't know. You can see the design, the divine in all things. You can feel the divine in all things. And they created a language to portray just that. And they used primarily, actually only the Bible for the foundation. So you don't see landscapes with Madonna in it. You only see the real Christian story with uh, Jesus and Mary, the disciple, the feast days, the principal events of Jesus walking around on the planet. Those are the earliest icons. And then, of course, they expanded into saints and um, other feast days and celebrations. Does that answer the question? Yeah. So one of the, so having been a history major and a history teacher for a short period of time, the Byzantine Empire is really a fascinating period of, of ancient history. And uh, the word Byzantine in common usage now has sort of a negative connotation as being overly complicated. But in looking at your artwork, it also, in terms of in terms of art, it looks like it has a lot, uh, it's art that provides a lot of detail um, and a, a, maybe some ornamentation. Is that a, is that a fair takeaway? Yes, I think the early icons were much more simplified trying to just document the story. And then of course, by the 15th and 16th, 17th century, it became very embellished with lots of silver and gold. And these were holy divine objects to be sacred and cared for. I'm not so interested in that side of iconography. I'm more fascinated with how you, well, let's start at the beginning. I paint with egg tempera, which is eggs and dirt. And you can't really get anything more basic or organic than that. 
the earth pigments represent million year old eternity because it's the rock from which our planets are made. And the egg represents the life force um, of a chicken. It's just the raw egg, the, the, the raw potential of the yolk. Those two ingredients mixed together create a paint. But with that paint, we portray a divine image. And I use that term divine image out of respect for the Byzantine history of iconography. But I also, again, I'm gonna go back to, it's a marvelous thing that any of us can think or talk or speak. And in my understanding of how spirit works, you can't have spirit without flesh and you can't have flesh without spirit if you're going to be a human. Now, <laughs> maybe there's other stuff happening there, but for our place, we kind of need to reconcile those two realities. A rock is a rock and life force is life force. And you can't see life force, you can only see a rock. Some of your viewers who know about Byzantine iconography say, what is she talking about? This is not, you know, I only speak from the point of view of what it's taught me. I'm fascinated by this relationship of flesh and spirit. I think it's, it's, it's the core of what makes us human. Mm. We think. Yeah. We well, create. It's uh, a lot of our audience here is also um, in, interested in and, and certainly inspired and informed by Stoic philosophy, which came about after the Byzantine Empire, but um, you know during the Hellenistic period. And they have very, very similar views. They, um, they refer to the divine as logos, and it's the animating spark that provides us with all the things you're talking about, consciousness, spirit. Um, mm -hmm. And it is something that permeates everything. And, you know, it's, we are all one and we are all just facets of a one unified whole. Um, and some things have this animating spark and this consciousness and the rationality and creativity um, and social instinct that, uh, you know, goes along with that. So I'm, I'm hearing lots of resonance with what you're saying. Uh, and, and your artwork is just absolutely stunning. I'm a little curious just because um, it is very eye-catching and very just beautiful. How did you, how did you arrive at, you know, studying and then practicing, um, you know, and I don't know if you would call it imitation, but you certainly seem to be inspired by, uh, you know, a very ancient approach to art. Gosh, I don't know where to begin with that one. Um, go back to logos, which also means word. And in the beginning, there was no sound because there was no time or space. And like I said, the first thing we have is, or the first event that happens is a thought and out of that thought comes a word um my uh interest in all of this i think is to actually break barriers i am very rebellious as a human being <laughs> but really as an iconographer some people don't even want me to call myself that um i'm gonna can i share a picture from a book i did absolutely um, here's the book and it's called In Light of Women and it was my personal journey about how to reconcile the fact that I felt like there weren't enough women involved in um, the church story. And I understand that it's history and that's fine, but we really need to re-establish re what that relationship is. 
So I broke norm with iconography and I did, let's see, this is in reverse there. I did this, bam, there. I did this image, which is Mary standing next to, Mary Magdalene standing next to Jesus. Um, here's the book and it's another, right on the cover, it has Mary holding the Eucharist. Mary, the mother of God holding the Eucharist. If you can hold those two images in your mind, what's rebellious about both of them is, first of all, you can't portray people the same size as Jesus because Jesus was all man and all God. And I absolutely am Christian 100%. I love going to church. I don't want to change the church. But the one place that I get really upset with priests is if I push, 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 push with who is Jesus, who is Jesus, and how close can I be to that? They always come up with that great one line that says, well, he was all God and you're just Mary Jane. And I think, yeah, but I'm a child of God. So where's the line between that line and son of God, you know? So I, I like playing in the realm of <laughs> imagining that one day I'll have the answer. Obviously, I'll never have the answer because the doctrine was made up by somebody else, not my mind. On the other hand, it is a, a, a paradigm for me to live at, live within. Um, but where the Mary Magdalene icon and Jesus really hit is I made them the same size. Mm -hmm. If she had been just a little smaller, I might have gotten away with it. I also made it so they were touching hands as if it was holy union like a marriage, but I didn't intend it as a holy union. I intended it as... We all are united people, and when we find somebody to follow, it is like a marriage. We dedicate ourselves. Whether you're a Buddhist, whether you're a Hindu, whether you're whether you're a nothing, and you you know whether you want to follow nature, whether you love animals, there's a commitment there that's made that's really in my mind divinely made. Your desire doesn't come from anywhere; it comes from outside, and you're given it. You're bestowed upon, and it comes with a certain amount of. Uh, sacrifice i'll call it another word we never use these days that icon got me into trouble and she's holding the eucharist the cover of the book has mary the mother of god who's holding the eucharist and after doing 26 portraits of mary and all the different variations of mary because people paint mary more than any other image i realized that mary's sort of the container she's mm. the church She's the vessel that you enter into for divine understanding. If we think of Mary as being the, the receptacle of this beautiful Christ story, she's the beginning. She held the first word in her body. And when it was birthed, it was birthed out of her body and became part of the world that we live in. Well, if you go to Eucharist, you're supposed to go in and be part of that oh, heavenly banquet, they call it. And we all become one part of a whole. And I really I get into so much trouble with these conversations because priests really will say, you can't just bend stuff because you feel like it. And I'm like, yeah, but... Bending stuff because of what you feel like is really why we have progress in the world. <laughs> yeah. If we didn't, uh, who's the guy that invent, who said the world isn't flat? Uh, it wasn't Copernicus. Yeah, it was Copernicus. Mm -hmm. um, he, I'm sure, was bending ideas in his mind long before anybody got that 
idea down. And now if you ever said to anybody, well, the world's flat, they just, oh, don't be silly. <laughs> yeah, I think Copernicus was actually the heliocentric theory. Uh, he's the one that said the earth went around the, the sun. Oh, um, all right. Well, some who said that it was flat? It I was think everybody flat. said it was flat until, <laughs> until after Columbus. Um, and I'm not sure. Um, no, come on. It wasn't Copernicus. Anyway, maybe one of your callers will, will drive in and say, well, this is the I, answer. What I love about what you're saying is it, you, it, one of the, the communities where I serve is Akimba Workshops. And these are workshops that were created by Seth Godin, but are now owned independently as a B Corp social impact company. And one of the things that Seth is famous for saying is go make a ruckus, which he means. And, and in that, you know, some of the things that he means are, um, you know, the status quo is just fine, but we can be and do better. So why not bend or break the status quo and build something that's, you know, undeniably better, um, either alongside or out, out of it. And, um, you know, this idea of uh, standing up to be seen, speaking up to be heard, um, sharing assertions, exploring the edges of our understanding and our ability. These are these are all really important thing things. And to your point, um, you know the 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 age of of coercion and compliance. I think is quickly coming to an end because in the information age, we can all find what we want to find, um, and we you know again, as conscious creatures you know, with a capacity for reason and rationality, we can use it to be reasonable or we can use it to be, you know, to rationalize. <laughs> so it's important. Uh, the thing that seems to me to, to be the most important is to develop this capacity to engage in um, difficult conversations, to have disagreements without being disagreeable and to explore, um, you know, to hold space for dual or multiple truths, multiple um, possibilities. So I, I love that you're leaning into that edge and that you're you're doing that work. As we're getting uh, towards the last 10 minutes of our conversation, one of the things that I would love to ask you about um, is, you know, most people that are pursuing creative work and developing their craft and refining their voice and trying to find their audience um, are going to be playing with those edges that I referenced a minute ago. And um, whether they're, you know, mistakes or just, uh, or failures in like an ultimate sense or just, you know, things that didn't work out because that's what creatives do. We, we break things and we try things that might not work. <laughs> Is there a particular moment in the development of your craft where, you know, something didn't work out as intended, but you were able to take a profound, you know, lesson, aha, takeaway, or even flipped an obstacle into an opportunity so that it really helped you level up in, in your pursuit of craft? Boy, Scott, you're really good with language. Um, <laughs> uh, I have to say that, yes, I've done quite a few icons that have been paramountly changing, transformative in such subtle ways, and they're mostly spiritual ways, I think, the way I look at the world. Um, but personally, um, I think one of the problems with the world that I feel like I live in, and it's I feel like I live in, because I don't know if I actually live there, is we have a great deal of ownership. Mm -hmm. And that business of conversion and compliance, it seems like the world for, you're about the same age as I am, 
we've been encouraged to kind of comply and to go with the the flow. And then there's another side of us that's been always sort of breaking down barriers like the hippies. But right now, right now in the world, more than ever, I think we really need to think outside the box because the box has become very redundant and very fear fear based and small in a sense. When I push up against the church, I feel like they're trying to keep me in that small place. And I'm really not trying to take away the small place. All I'm trying to do is say there's a bigger place where the Hindu and the Buddhist and the Christian can lay down together, where we can realize that we're not kings of the planet. We're here to care for the planet. Both of those things I've had tremendous resistance to because they want, whoever that they are, if I'm going to be a Byzantine iconographer, I can only do it this way. And yet, if we're going to talk about the word of God or spirituality, they're such delicious words. Why are they so small sometimes? Um, if anything, I've worked very hard to not confine myself and feel only recently, I'd say in the last, I've been doing this for 30 years. In the last 10 years, I'm finally getting my voice. That's when I started writing the books because I wasn't selling any icons. Who sells icons in Southwest Virginia? And who sells icons in Mexico? I mean, there's a God who put me where there's nobody buying anything. <laughs> and I do have the websites and, you know, I'm not complaining at all. I've got a beautiful life, but um, I started writing the books because I've got so much to say about these kinds of conversations and this kind of world that we're living in. And I only want the best for it as you do, or you wouldn't be doing these podcasts. Yeah. I love what you're saying. It's, it's a creative on purpose. We talked about the, um, you're sufficient, even as you strive, like you actually are just fine the way you are. Um, and you can be and do better. And so if you just take a small step into your potential and promise, well, if you, as you get there, your level of sufficiency also rises. And so you can continue to, to inch your way up. Um, and this is how we develop our potential and deliver our promise. And, you know, what I love about what you're saying is through things like your books, where you're communicating your, I, I, I don't know about you, I, I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective, but I began, I never had any aspirations to, to write books, but I wrote, Me either. began writing books because I, I needed to clarify my ideas. And the only way I could clarify this was to put them on paper and iterate them and share them. Um, and then, you know, fortunately in the digital publishing, you can go back and revise as many times as you want. So the books get better, the more my understanding develops, the more skill I develop, the more confidence I develop, and the more connection I have with people who are interested in the ideas and the principles and practices that I'm exploring. And so I uh, just would love to hear, you know, any thoughts on how the writing part, which it sounds like was not your primary goal, no. <laughs> um, how that has helped you uh, with all the other things that you're exploring through your art. I'm a funny little artist because I didn't take up iconography because I wanted to. Somebody said, you should do this. And then I didn't want to paint an egg temper and somebody gave me egg temper paints and they said, here, it's your turn. You need to do this now, this and this life. And most of the icon books that I have in my collection are also gifts. And where writing came, it was exactly the same. A friend of mine who said to me, you know, you're teaching all these classes, why don't you write a book about it? And I said, write a book? I don't know how to write. 
she said, I'll help you. She does layouts and uh, she did the first book. Um, and I would, couldn't believe how beautiful it was because the layout was nice, but I couldn't believe how much I learned by trying to meticulously write down each mm -hmm. little way you do this particular thing in an icon and why do we do this little thing in the icon and what it signifies. And it clarified so much for me. And I got so excited. I said, oh, I want to do this again. And I think now I've got 12 books. Uh, they're not big books. They're all little, very small books. It's a small audience. But um, I appreciate what you're saying. When you actually have to articulate something in words and you realize somebody's going to actually read this. Um, I, asked, I asked a woman to do a review of my latest book, uh, Life in Christ. And she wrote back and she said, I read your whole book and I really like it, but I can't give you an okay on it because you said that the gospel isn't a permanent fixture. It too can change. And I said, well, I'll take that line out. And she said, oh, no, I can't, I can't endorse your book. And I was like, wow, you can not endorse a book for a whole sentence. Hmm. Or you can not endorse a whole book for one small sentence. But it does go back to the power of the word. And you do have to stand up next to your art. If you're a musician, if you're a scientist, if you're a, if you're a car mechanic, if you're an artist, you have to say, this is who I am, and it might be defective. This is the wall that I broke down. Yes, I broke it down. It's my fault. I stand by it. That takes a lot of courage. I can see why it took me 20 years of being in the closet. Because <laughs> <laughs> once I got out, I could never go back. And once you realize you do have a voice to write, it does feel really good. And I don't know how many books I'll sell and I don't know how many people will influence. It really doesn't matter. It's just like any art form. You have to do it because you were given the job to do. Yeah. I, I appreciate your comments about your books being short. I'm a big, I, all of my books are, I call handbooks. The shortest is three pages long and the longest is 130 <laughs> pages long. And you know, I think you, you only need to use as many words as is necessary to get somebody to take action and to you know take what they've learned out into their into the world into their lives, um, so I I appreciate that posture very much. Well, we are coming up to the end of our half hour together, and so I always close with this final question. Uh, we have a lot of people who like you are advancing difference makers. There are people that um, are discovering, developing, and delivering the difference only they can make, and trying to enhance their lives by doing work that serves others. If there was just one final piece of advice or one tip from your experience that you would could share with somebody who like you wants to fly higher in an endeavor that makes a difference, what might that be? Show up every day and be the best self that you can. Commit to your own self. And it's not a selfish, your self is made up by all the other selves in the world. You're just one little expression, but you have to show up every day and get to know that person. That's a big job. We're pretty complicated people. Yes, or as we say, creative on purpose. People are fascinating. We are creative on purpose because we. I'd be so bored otherwise. Exactly. I love going in my studio. First thing I like to do in the morning is make a cup of coffee and I go in there and I sit around and I say, oh, what will I do today? And I usually get work and sometimes I don't, sometimes I pick up you know, some little mop and do the floor because that needs to be done. But show up every day. 
what you do the work right in front of you with purpose on purpose for purpose and uh you're you're going to be creative on purpose i love it well thanks everyone for tuning in mary jane and i really appreciate you lending us some of your valuable time and attention we hope that today's broadcast motivates you to lean into an endeavor that matters with greater curiosity and courage. You can learn more about Mary Jane Denial there uh, at millericons.com. And of course, it's always fantastic to also see you at creativeonpurpose.com. Now, take the insight and inspiration from this conversation and keep flying higher in the difference only you can make. Mary Jane Miller, thanks so much for being with us today and sharing all your wisdom. It's been a pleasure and I've been so comfortable. Scott, you're absolutely a wonderful host. <laughs> oh, thanks Thank very you. much.